2: The year is nineteen sixty-eight, and the dead are rising from the grave, and they're saying one thing: podcast the movie, the Night of the Living Dead.
4: everybody, and welcome to Unspooled.
2: Unspooled.
4: I am Amy Nicholson.
2: And I am Paul Shear and this is the podcast where we are watching what we consider the best films of all time to put on trial, in a way, to make our perfect list of 100 films. We've already went through the AFI list. We've kept about 40. We're looking for 60 more great films. And right now, we are in the middle of our horror series, and we are really in the thick of it. Amy, I mean... So many good films. I keep on saying to you, I am so energized by this second season. Every time I hit play, I'm giddy.
4: I know. Every time I hit play, I'm like, you sir, are guilty of being a good movie.
2: <laughs> um, we'll talk about this more in the actual episode, because we were talking about Night of the Living Dead today, but... uh I've never seen this movie. So, I thought I had. I think what I realized was I saw the Tom Savini version of this, mm-hmm. the 1990 version of it, which I of course know wasn't the George Romero version, but for whatever reason in my mind I've I kind of mixed them up. Um and I'm so excited to talk to you about it because it feels so of the now. Um but also loving how everyone's been responding to what they want to see as the audience pick for our last one in the series. The votes are are coming in fast and furious. And, uh, wow, some surprises in there.
4: Definitely. I would be happy to do anything that people are tweeting at us, honestly. Like, anything. Yeah. All of the movies that people are suggesting are so good. Um, so I'm just excited. I feel like we can't really lose with whatever the audience pick is on this. It's going to be great.
2: I know, and it sounds probably dumb to... To say this, but I will also just say that seeing all the suggestions makes me realize just how vast the world of horror is. That we can talk about movies like Scream, The Thing, Get Out, The Exorcist, all in the same conversation. They're very different films, um, yet you know, Shaun of the Dead is even in this conversation, yeah. and I love that. Like, I I think you know, it's obviously a neglected piece of the AFI list. And it's really great to just kick off our first foray into horror with this. And I, I can't wait to revisit it uh, as we go forward in the series.
4: I know, very much. Like, I, I have to admit, I was never much of a creepy girl growing up because I get nightmares easily. I okay. immediately get nightmares. Like, I've been watching some of the old 70s Criterions um, mm. that are on Criterion right now. I had a nightmare that I was locked inside the mansion of, like, Hammer, the director of the Hammer films.
2: Wow, that's of very— fun. It was a
4: fun dream, but— but yeah, I, I, I scare so easily. I that, like that
2: your dream is about you being caught by like the the head of the organization mm-hmm. of the film, like not like not like the creature <laughs> from the film. Like you are having, like you're.
4: Yeah, <laughs> I was caught in his, and actually in my dream, he was already dead, and there was like a whole big fight about the will, and for some reason, I was up for like contention in the will, but like one of his other, I was his granddaughter suddenly at one point in the dream, and like the it, it was complicated. But what I'm trying to say is that. It really wasn't until I was a critic that I began to love horror the way that I do Mm. because as a critic, you realize really quickly that horror is pretty much the most interesting thing you can review because there's always something worth talking about. There's always something going on. There's always um, engines whirring under the surface. And because it is usually the genre that you can do for the least amount of money, it's where you find the next wave of talent. So horror has been so much of my beat that I love ever since I really got over my fear-ish.
2: Well, to me, my entry to horror was Scream. I mm-hmm. avoided horror for such a long time and that movie kind of opened me up to that 90s explosion of mainstream horror like whether it was Scream, The New Halloween, The I Know What You Did Last Summer, not like that these are the best films, but um you know, Blair Witch came out at that time. Like horror became hot uh or at least to me and that brought me in and then I've gone back uh in found different things in the past. I want to just bring up one film that's coming up because you've seen it, I read it, but Bad Hair is coming out this month, Mm -hmm. right? And you really like that movie.
4: Yeah, I saw Bad Hair at the Sundance premiere and I just thought it was incredibly clever. If people um, haven't had it on their radar yet, because it is kind of a smaller film, it's directed by Justin Simeon, um, and it's a horror film that's kind of set in that pivotal pop culture moment of the late 80s, early 90s, when, you know, music was changing, style was changing, tastes are changing. And there's a woman who works at um, a music office, like kind of like an MTV type. And to get ahead, she decides she needs a really cool head of hair and the hair is evil. But it is just such a great blend of social criticism, comedy. Scares. It's a terrific film. I'm excited for people to check it out.
2: It's going to actually premiere on Hulu on 1023. So it's coming up. uh, But just wanted to get that out there. And we have this is not an ad. It's just basically a cool new horror film that we won't be discussing here on the show. But uh, may be worth adding to your night of 31 scares. Uh, uh, um, But let's get into it, shall we, Amy? Let's bring this podcast up from the ashes and unspool it. The year is 1968. Martin Luther King Jr., the leader of the civil rights movement, is assassinated by gunfire by James Earl Ray. Two months later, Senator Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated by gunfire by Sirhan Sirhan. NASA successfully launches the Surveyor 7 lunar lander, Apollo 7, and Apollo 8 within the year. Anti-Vietnam War protests are seen throughout the world. The Pope prohibits Catholics from using contraceptive pills for birth control. The Zodiac Serial Murderer begins his reign of terror in California. And this year's popular films are The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Planet of the Apes, Rosemary's Baby, and today's subject, The Night of the Living Dead. Let's take a listen to a clip.
5: I think we have some late words of just arriving, and I'll interrupt to bring this to you. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. It's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you but it does seem to be a fact
2: amy who's in it what's it about
4: night of the living dead it is the rough and double low budget movie that shocked audiences and crowned its director george romero into a name that has become just shorthand for horror itself romero it's horror it's delicious um no night of the living dead is the saga of a woman named barbara she's having this ordinary day with her brother johnny they're visiting their their dad's grave at a cemetery when they are suddenly attacked by a zombie Johnny becomes one of The Walking Dead, and Barbara escapes to a farmhouse where she meets Ben, a practical man who is too busy hammering shut all of the doors and the windows and dealing with a pretty much catatonic Barbara to tell us much about his past. Also in the house, we have a young couple, Tom and Judy, and a family headed by an angry blowhard named Cooper, who argues with Ben about how to stay alive from the hordes gathering outside their door. Now, spoiler alert, nobody in this movie survives, because despite his practical skills, Ben, who's played by Dwayne Jones, outlasts the zombies only to be shot by the cops. And that the actor who plays Ben, Dwayne Jones, is black. And that the film, as you just said, Paul, came out months after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Both of those things have made this film honestly really doubly impactful, both as a horror film and as a political statement. Now, Night of the Living Dead also came out the same year as British rock group The Zombies released their biggest hit, The Time of the Season. But unfortunately, that was not number one on October 1st, 1968, when Night of the Living Dead was released. How cool would that be? But Time of the Season actually had its own zombie-like resurrection. Because it came out and nobody really cared. And then it died. And then it was resurrected a full year later. And that's when it climbed all the way to number three on the charts. So I think maybe the movie helped. And people we were like, zombies are kind of cool. But... What was on the charts on October 1st, 1968 was a mega hit that spent more time that year at number one than anything else and still refuses to die. It is a little song by a little group called The Beatles that goes, Hey Jude, don't be afraid. And honestly, when we listen to the lyrics, it does kind of sound like it's about zombies. Hey Jude, don't
6: be afraid You were made too
2: Amy, did I hear a little disdain in your voice for Hey Jude?
4: No, not at all. But come on. You have found her. Now go and get her. That's creepy. So
2: you think that Paul McCartney is giving a signal to the zombies like Paul McCartney maybe is the undead. I mean, we all know the cover of uh, Abbey Road. So do you think that he's signaling the rest of people to rise up without their shoes on to uh, go and, and eat the brains of other people?
4: I'm just saying the next time you hear Hey Jude, imagine them singing straight to that cemetery zombie. He's going he's <laughs> going to go get her man he's going to go get her
2: Um so Amy like I said I have not seen this film before and I loved it I loved it for um a, a myriad of reasons and I just want to talk about the surface ones first Um this movie is the blueprint of what we know as the modern day zombie film I mean everything that we have seen can be traced right to this film and I was it kind of just blew my mind that The tone was set so early and also surprising how we haven't really deviated that much from it.
4: Yeah, it's true. I mean, I'm really into zombie history because I think zombies are the monster that is completely tied up with film. You know, zombies are younger than film. You know, zombies are the genre that I think film really created. And I don't want to bore people too much. If anybody's really, really interested in zombie lore and how it goes back, I believe, to a film from World War I called *Jacques*. I did a whole podcast about that on my miniseries Zoom that's like really into the weeds about zombie lore, which I will try not to repeat too much here. Um, but yeah, this idea of creatures coming back from the dead who up until this point of Night of the Living Dead were fairly peaceful. Like when you saw a zombie in a movie before this film, it wasn't a thing like white zombie with bella lugosi where right. they're brainwashed people they're forced to be working in sugar plantations they're they're tragic you know but they weren't attacking and biting and killing people until this like this is where the zombie becomes the modern zombie as we know it shuffling chasing you down gonna come get you can't escape it and and yet i feel like there is something in the figure of a zombie that still has tragedy to it You know, they are us. I think the zombie as a monster has the most humanity,
2: honestly. Well, I mean, not to make you go too much down your old podcast route, but I want to just talk about this idea that, you know, the term zombie is not used in this film very much the same way Mm -hmm. that Ewok is not said in Return of the Jedi. Um, But that's what we view this movie as, right? We view this movie as this is a zombie movie, but zombies and that whole idea of zombies comes from Haiti, which i didn't even realize like that was the the this like the haitian legends of a a voodoo practice where a sorcerer resurrects the dead and they become its mindless slave right and then those ideas were appropriated in films like white zombie and i walked with a zombie but romero kind of not resented but held off those comparisons he's like well i'm not we're not a zombie this is undead these are flesh eaters these are these are different things but i i think Zombie is just a catchier name. I don't know. like, But he he clearly embraces it um, as he makes the sequels. But uh, when this first comes out, uh, not a zombie movie, not trying to make a zombie movie. And maybe the, the difference is, is in a zombie is controlled by somebody else. And here they are controlled by themselves. They have more autonomy.
4: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he calls them ghouls here, which I think is so... Mm-hmm. generic, to be honest. I mean, I can be a ghoul. I can be a ghoul all the time. I'm very ghoulish. ghoul yeah. is just sort of like a, a catch-on. Um,
2: well, well, I mean, he even said, he goes, look, I never thought of them as zombies. I thought they were just back from the dead. I ripped off the idea from uh, the Richard Matheson novel, I Am Legend, which is great if you've not read that. And he thought I Am Legend was about revolution. And I said, if I'm going to do something about revolution, you should start at the beginning. I mean, Richard starts his book with one man left. Everyone in the world has become a vampire. I said, well, let's start at the beginning and then tweak it a little. And I couldn't use vampires because he did it. So I wanted something that would be Earth-shaking and something that would be a huge change, and something that was forever, something that was really at the heart of it. And so I said, "Well, what if the dead stop staying dead?" And I love that idea that he was inspired by such a seminal piece of work. And it's, I always like to see how people were inspired by something else. Like he took an idea and just turned it a little bit. And I think that's what modern horror is so great at. Oh, we see this, but now we're looking at it from this angle. And uh, and I think that you know it's interesting that he was so bold and I was like, "Yeah, I took this idea. There it is."
4: Yeah, I mean, this idea of revolution, I think, is really baked into kind of who these monsters are, right? I mean, one of the mm-hmm. things that he gave the actors who played the zombies in his film, who are usually just like locals from the Pennsylvania area, he was paying them like 25 bucks to agree to be zombies, get wax put all over their faces, kind of like almost old, original Frankenstein style, how he had the wax on his eyelids. They're just getting wax milk put yeah. on them to look a little bit misshapen. And the only direction he really gave them is. As a zombie, you have no power, except in tandem with each other. You can only rely on each other for strength. And it makes the zombie here operate kind of like the protests that were happening in 1968, kind of like the protests happening in Chicago, kind of this idea of protest and revolution is just baked into them. These are creatures that when they're united, can do anything, even if one by one, they're just a slow moving thing that can be hit in the head.
2: Well, I'd also go and say there's something interesting about this film based on when it was made versus when it came out. Because it was made before Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I believe like there's a story that they just finished editing it, and that was the day that they heard on the radio that Martin Luther King was assassinated. So the way it was received is almost different than how it was intended. And I think that that's a really interesting distinction and makes this movie so much more powerful, especially with the lead. But I, I, I know that you, uh, you even have a clip of uh, Romero kind of talking
3: about this, right?
4: I do, yeah. Here's him talking about the Martin Luther King connection.
3: The actor who played Ben was very concerned, and almost the only one who was concerned about his being African American. We were going, "Hey, come on, man! It's 1968. This we're all we're, we're we're all past all of that." Little did we know, right? When we made the first print of that of the movie, and we were driving it to New York to show it to potential distributors. Um, We heard, driving in the car, uh, one of the producers, Russ Streiner, and I heard the news on the radio that Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Now, all of a sudden, it was a black film. It became a black film. Even though when Jack Russo and I wrote the script, the character in the script, we assumed him to be white. When Dwayne agreed to play the role, we didn't change the script. The same things would have happened to him if the actor had been white. The fact that these redneck posse guys shot him, that became racial instead of just a mistaken identity, which is really what we intended. Now,
4: I feel a couple different ways about this. Like one, I'm not here to call George Romero a liar. That's a terrible thing to do. He passed away a few years ago. That means he could come out and attack me. Of course. But you have to think like, when Night of the Living Dead starts, you have the credits, and he chooses, as he's putting everybody's name on the credits, to put his name on the screen right next to this big dramatic close up of the American flag. And I refuse to believe that there's not something in the back of George Romero's head that knows he's making a big American statement with this film. Like, he is just too smart of a guy. Like, George Romero is a man who even before this moment of making this film, this being like his first real feature, was a filmmaker who I believe was very involved in politics. He actually, before he was doing this, one of the things he was doing to make money, and he was doing a lot of crazy stuff to make money, was he was making ads for McGovern, the political candidate. And they were incredibly political. They were about death. They were about Black Lives mattering. Uh, Let's play one, actually. It's going to sound a little sad, but this is early work of George Romero that predates Night of the Living Dead.
6: This happens every 27 minutes in America. Sounds like some underdeveloped country, doesn't it? Regrettably, it's right here at home. Every 27 minutes, a black child dies. The past and present administrations were and are aware of the situation. George McGovern feels a moral obligation to bring this to an immediate end. Let our children live. Join hands with McGovern. We've got a friend. My baby!
4: I mean, that commercial is online. and If you want to look at it, the final two shots are a hearse pulling away and a sobbing black mother who's lost her child
2: well he is a man who
4: has things he wants to get across
2: absolutely and i think what is interesting about this is the zombies represent the fear of a revolution we talked about this you know just a while ago like he he liked that idea of a revolution he liked this idea of this other force rising up making you take notice of something um and the reaction to that, and and I couldn't help, and not to make this show incredibly political, but look at how this movie resonates right now and what we're going through, because we're talking about a large-scale crisis, right? And I think back then, civil rights is obviously at the forefront of so many people's minds, and there's so much um, tension in our country, there's so much of, you know, I'm right, you're wrong kind of battles going on, and this idea of not wanting to work together. And at the core of this movie, it kind of just shows this idea of there's something bigger out there. And instead of teaming up to solve it, we are becoming partisan. We are fighting. We are, uh, we are essentially, I think the reason why these people die is because they don't work together. Right. It's sort of like we need to combat the big issues as, humans right it's and 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 i know that like it's a weird mixed metaphor because i think if the zombies represent revolution our main characters want to defeat the revolution that's a hard i can't quite picture that but i think if i take a step back and go like the zombies represent other and we are afraid of other and we are afraid of what they will do um yeah there's i i see more of that but it's i was hard to kind of parse how you could see it in one way which is like Revolution is scary. We must hold back revolution. But the other side of it being like, this is how people react to a change, and but here the change is is deadly.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is interesting when you watch Romero's entire Dead series is you can toggle back and forth with who you're identifying with.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
4: like I would say, Land of the Dead is maybe the one where you identify almost the most with the zombies because it's about inequality, and you're, you're kind of on the zombie side because they're trying to overthrow this. Got This uh, horrible villain played by Dennis Hopper that I think Romero and was based on Donald Rumsfeld because the Iraq war was happening at the time. Oh, so you're wow. like really with the zombies at that point. Um, but with all of his zombie movies, he has a thing he's trying to say in particular. And with this one, I really do think it is about like, how are we going to work together when something goes wrong? Because what I love about the way that the film is structured is... He's not screwing with you. You know, the film starts really early on with a zombie. He's not like, oh, there's going to be zombies. And, oh, you have to wait until, like, the middle of the second act for, like,
2: the killer to start.
4: There's like, oh, five minutes in. Here's a zombie. By the way,
2: can we just talk about that reveal really quickly? Because I want to get to your bigger point. But the idea, like, when you just see that being that zombie in the background just we know now obviously what a zombie is and I like my I perk up because I know what this is about but could you imagine that first moment where you just see this you don't expect it wow what a shocking awesome moment to see this old man in a suit become so incredibly violent. He's not zombied out. He's not, you know, and I think one of the cool things about this film is the makeup isn't overdone. It's very subtle. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's minimal on the side of, I think, actually makes it more frightening in a way. Because they don't, they don't look like, Ugh! you know, they don't look like maggots are crawling out of their face. But anyway, what a great, great first reveal. So subtle in the background, beautifully directed, really great. Sorry. Yeah,
4: very much. I mean, that first zombie is played by um, Bill Hinsman who up until this point in his career, he had been like a part-time police forensics photographer. So he had seen some things um, and he decided he was going to model that very first zombie after Karloff. Um, not from that, yeah. Frankenstein, but from a different Karloff movie where Karloff played a resurrected man with an, a a dead-ish leg. And so he limped in a way that, um, that Bill Hinsman thought was really interesting. But what I love about the way Romero sets this up as a filmmaker is this film begins with you know, kind of this creepy intro music. that creepy music, he's keeping the camera really still. You know, it's very composed. We're watching the car curve on the road and it's that kind of static image where you're like, what's going to happen? Like, you're I keeping mean, this still for a reason. What's going on? Where well, are there's something, we?
2: the way this film is shot and maybe it's because it's black and white, but I don't think so. It it feels like an episode of Lassie. Like, and I mean that in, 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 in a really, in a positive way. Like, it's very flatly shot and I think, there's something calming about it. Like it, it though it's a play. I mean, essentially, if you take out that opening scene, it's a play, uh, the opening scene and the scene what? towards the end. I
4: don't think I agree with that at all. Really? You no. don't think it's like
2: people in a house? You couldn't put this on stage and watch this whole thing play out and feel like it's just as effective?
4: Okay, well, maybe we're getting into the "Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf" territory because I think his camera is doing really cool stuff. I think it's like leaning into people. People are getting like kind of distorted. There's like lights. You're disoriented a lot. You you get the sense yeah. of people having a panic attack of 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 immediacy. All those smash cuts.
2: I I think you're right. When the, when the zombies are at play, the camera is wild. But a lot of the film, I don't know. I felt a lot of the film was more static, which I thought maybe that's. To show a juxtaposition, too. I don't, I'm not saying it as a dig. I just felt like there was something almost so familiar about it that didn't feel like horror. It just like or, or maybe it had those moments of coming up and down. I don't know. Maybe no, I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. That.
4: No, I agree with that because like what I, I needed to get back to like that very first zombie. The What I love about the way that it's filmed is how you see that first zombie coming from behind, slowly pacing around in the back, you're aware of him, I think, only the second watch. You're like, who is that guy? Right. And there's something about a still camera that makes me as an audience member feel really on edge because you're like, you're making a choice here. What is this yes. choice? It. You know, I feel like this is a technique that you get to see picked up again in the The Invisible Woman that came out recently where there's that, my favorite part of that movie is just when the camera's still, you're watching her cook and you can tell the invisible man is in the kitchen, like, fucking with the burners that kind of stuff drives me nuts and that's how he treats this man you know kind of creeping up from behind you not making a big deal about it but something is wrong something is wrong and then not knowing what's wrong him not like cutting to the guy being like i'm gonna eat them or doing a behind the back shot as the zombie approaches yeah makes it more terrifying
2: well and i think the way the movie even opens obviously we have those static shots in the beginning but then the car scene that first car scene is funny i was like this is a great fun scene like it's playful. it's talking about daylight savings, which is an issue that clearly we've had a problem with for a very long time. <laughs> um and I think it does a great job of just loosening up the you know it just it does what I think most horror films do like everything is fine and cool until this next thing happens,
4: yeah, Johnny and Barbara are funny as yeah, siblings. I like them.
2: It actually it... shows Barbara I think it's a better arc for Barbara because when she does devolve and goes. Incredibly introverted for the for the remainder of the film, you just see how affected she is,
4: yeah, you get to see how much she cares about her brother, even though he's being kind of mean and kind of a pain. There's also this undercurrent in that scene in their conversation. you know, they're on their way to visit their dad's grave. Johnny doesn't really care. like Johnny is a character with no respect for the dead, for ceremony, mm. for what his dad might have died for like i I kind of believe um that his dad uh, died in World War II. It seems like it matched up and he's like sort of like, yeah, this guy died a long time ago. I never really knew him like yeah. he is. And even this idea of like the the cross that he keeps rebuying year after year, like the cross really won't stay dead. He feels like he keeps like buying it, leaving it here, getting sold it again. There's so much, I I believe, disrespect coming from Johnny about the lives that people have led that have brought them to this point in the cemetery. And even the cemetery itself isn't a cemetery that looks that respectable. You know, like, it's kind of askew when you watch it. Like, it's not orderly. Well, All of the, the tombstones to it are kind of is... crooked. Nothing matches. You can The can't entrance is just, it.
2: like, the sign is kind of covered over. It doesn't even have a proper, like, gate. It is just, like, up a ramp. And I, that may be part of the low-budget nature of this film. By the way, just to call it out, this movie is a low-budget film, and uh, the most successful low-budget film of all time, I think. It's uh, up there. Yeah, yeah, it's
4: way up there. There's a lot of competition, but it is definitely up there.
2: It was made for like $114,000, which is the equivalent of a basically a little less than a million in 2020. And it grossed $30 million. Uh, and, it, and that's back in the day when it came out. But to now, $223 million. Ah, uh, that's over two hundred and sixty three times its budget. I mean, that is giant.
4: I want to play before we leave the the cemetery, before we go into like the meat of what this movie is about, that little bit of interaction between Johnny and Barbara when he tries to scare her. You know, mm. that, I, I just love this moment so much. Hey, I mean, prayings for
3: church, huh? Come on.
4: I haven't seen you in church lately.
3: <laughs> well, there's not much sense in my going to church. Do you remember one time when we were small, we were out here? It was from right over there. I jumped out at you from behind the tree and Grandpa got all excited and he shook his fist at me and he said, boy, you'll be damned to hell. (laughs) Remember that, right over there. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny. You're still afraid.
4: Stop it now, I mean it.
3: They're coming to get you, Barbara.
1: Stop it! You're ignorant!
3: They're coming for you, Barbara.
1: Stop it! You're acting like a child! Look,
3: they're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now!
4: And now, I want to kind of say a couple things in here. You know, even just this foreshadowing that Johnny's gonna wind up in hell, you know, and he's the first person that we see get hit and attacked, that we see him. You know, fall to the ground and smash his head open on a tombstone. They made a, a sound effect there with a smashed watermelon, very Gallagher style. Yeah, very much. And then later we get to see that like Barbara can't admit that she saw that, you know, that she thinks he's still alive somewhere, that he's out there. But everything about this opening chase sequence I just love so much because it is just pure chaos. You know, like the fight looks like chaos, like it's very sloppy and messy. When she escapes, that's chaotic. She gets all the way there, then she realizes Johnny has the car keys, she loses a shoe. Nothing feels very planned. Like it she escapes only by releasing the clutch, and then the car immediately crashes. Like everything about it doesn't feel action hero oriented. Mm. It doesn't feel scripted. It feels like it feels as I think shaggy and documentary as if I was trying to escape. Like I know, by the way, that I'm gonna die first in a horror film, no matter what. Like I have no survival instinct. And and it makes it feel real. You know, all these this kind of like casual, sloppy, chaotic versions of death that we're seeing early on, make give this film a reality that I just think makes it yet, so striking.
2: Yet that's exactly what we are still seeing today. You know, that from the cliche trope of the shoe is going to fall off. I mean, you can see that in movies like the new reboot of Jurassic Park to, you know, to all, to really, I think all these tropes were started here. But I think what you're saying is realism in horror probably starts here, right? Like Frankenstein is heightened. It's big. You know, Dracula is big. Not, and not saying that this is the only film between the two, but there is something so real about these characters. I think, uh, from what I understand, the script was heavily improvised. The actors really informed how their characters would be. I mean, whether or not that was Barbara, who was supposed to be a little bit more bubbly um, and not be as introverted, but... As he saw her take on it, he guided her towards that, you know, and I also think that as we meet uh, Ben, you know, Ben is somebody who uh, also kind of falls into he is the everyman and does this in a really great way. And I think originally they wanted him to be a little bit more crude. Um, But he He was, I I think actually, what I love about him is that he's not uh, a typical tough guy. He's just a smart, uh, that's at least how I view him as like a smart guy who's trying to be very rational and logical about this. And so I think all those like choices of letting the actors dictate a little bit more, letting the dialogue be more from their voice makes this film pop and still feel fresh.
4: No, you're right. Like, Like what I was trying to say when I got so sidetracked by talking about how great the opening sequence is is that this is a movie that is bracketed. Like, here's a zombie. Here come some zombies intermittently. But the real thrust of the action is what are we going to do when we're attacked, right? Like you were Mm -hmm. talking about. And him just witnessing the way these different people are going to be and having it feel so real, having it have this documentary energy to it. You Actually, Romero, before he made this movie, one of his other jobs was he was a PA on a movie that we covered in season one. He was a PA on North by Northwest, the Hitchcock film. Oh, interesting. And he said that he didn't like that movie. He thought that being on that set made him think that the movie was so mechanical and that nothing about it felt like it was organic or alive. And he wanted to do the opposite of that. So he actually was like Hitchcock, whatever. I'm going to learn how to make films by hanging out in newsrooms and watching how people put together stories from what's really happening, watching how they edit and splice really fast. And that was where he got this energy that makes Night of Living Dead feel like it's from a different universe than something like a Hitchcock film. Than that Hitchcock film.
2: Well, I think that that actually talks a little bit to what I'm saying about the camera movements. Like, he's confident enough in what's going on in the frame, at least for these intense dialogue scenes, to allow the camera to just capture it in a wide a lot of the times. Or, you know, uh, get these moments. You're seeing a lot of action on the screen. And I love how he incorporated actual real news footage. I felt like the news footage actually, it's so hard to create believable news footage it never looks quite as good as you want it to look and it you know like it just looks cheaper no matter what and this yeah it's weird
4: that newscasters have such a look and yet whenever you cast a person to play a newscaster they don't look like a newscaster i can't know what that is
2: i mean even when wolf blitzer is in like the latest mission impossible doing like the situation room on the set of situation room it doesn't feel like the situation room it feels like a movie version of it. It's like, what's going on? Like, they are literally are there. They're shooting yeah. it on the sets, but there's something about it that just feels a little, uh, I don't know, heightened or something. But here, I love the way that they were able to get out so much um, exposition, and they do it so late in the film. Uh, but they also have, like, from sound design, we talk about sound design a lot, like, in horror. Like, you hear this radio in the background a lot throughout the film, and you can really, like, kind of zone into it if you want, but it's constantly giving you this update when especially when they're in the house
4: yeah let's listen to a little bit of that and as we're listening part of why this radio announcer sounds so good is that the, the radio announcer um charles craig was just actually a real newscaster like he just was and he knew how to do it i mean the new stuff in here looks real because romero was also doing this on the cheap and so when the local news came by to be like look we're making a little movie here in rural pennsylvania He was like, oh, can your cameraman play a cameraman? We have a cameraman scene. Oh, you have a helicopter upstairs watching us make a movie? Can I film your helicopter to put it in the movie? Like he was just recycling all the stories that people were telling about him and using it to make his movie look bigger. Can my guy ride up in your helicopter? We'd really appreciate that. We can't afford one. Sure, we have nothing else going on. It's only 1968, the biggest news year until 2020. Um, But yeah, let's listen to the radio guy.
5: So, at this point, there is no really authentic way for us to say who or what to look for and guard yourself against. Misshapen monsters. Reaction of law enforcement officials is one of complete bewilderment at this hour. So far, we have been unable to determine that any kind of organized investigation is yet underway. Police, sheriff's deputies, and emergency ambulances are literally deluged with calls for help. And the scene can best be described as mayhem. The mayors of Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Miami, along with the governors of several eastern and midwestern states, have indicated the National Guard may be mobilized at any moment, but that has not happened as yet. The only advice our reporters have been able to get from official sources is for private citizens to stay in their homes behind locked doors. Do not venture outside for any reason until the nature of this crisis has been determined.
4: I mean, can I be honest with you, Paul? Like, when I listen to the news broadcast in this movie, I am, of course, thinking about now. So much of the advice is stay inside. We don't really know what's happening. We don't really know what's coming or how it's going to get you. Stay inside. That's the safest thing you can do.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea that, like, again, I couldn't help but, like, put this through a COVID lens uh, because, obviously, we're in our houses right now. And it's like, well, what's safe and where do we be safe? And, you know, and this idea of, like, well, it's safe to go here. or It's not safe to go here. Like, this, this is an argument where this thing is coming at us and how do we do it do we retreat to the basement and hide do we stay on the upper floor and fight you know and and there's an interesting idea about that too um and i don't think it's about like i don't want to say like one person's about wearing masks and the other one's about not wearing masks that's dumb i'm not i'm not saying that at all i think that this idea of how can we you know, not give up. I think that there's something about somebody going down to the basement. And it's like, oh, I'm going to hang out there and I'm not going to do anything. And then, then our lead character, Ben, is saying, no, we're going to we're gonna fight here because we have our sustenance here. We're going to do it. Now, he's not saying let's go out there and try to talk to them. But I, I don't know. It's interesting to show that idea of retreating and interacting. And interacting in this sense is, yes, killing and, and keeping your area safe. But I do think that there's something about engage like one person wants to engage one person wants to run away and that seems to be the battle and it's a war of these people in the house who's going to go with who what's the right thing do we hide or do we fight for our survival
4: yeah very much i mean there's some showdowns in this scene in this movie that i really love like i love just even the reveal that there have been these five people in the basement you know the family of three who actually was a real family like Carl Hardiman and and Marilyn Eastman they're playing the parents they're just actually parents of the girl who's their real girl uh, Kira they're married in real life they're also producers of the (laughs) film oh there's so much to talk about but maybe just like really quick as a sidebar I just want to say to kind of frame it as we get into the cast members they're pretty much all producers because the way that George Romero made this film was he got together like basically 10 friends and he was like can we put in money can we put in money listen I make commercials here I do a lot of production work I can make a film let's all invest our own money in it and we'll try to sell it and then we can make our money back and then maybe maybe we'll make another film with the money we have but let's at least just do it once and see what happens and so that's why a lot of the actors in here are just producers they're like I'm hanging out we have no money we may as well just do this on our own I'll play a part you play a part and it has that it has so much of just an amateur feel I mean Some of the only people who are cast in here, Barbara was cast. She was a local actress. Dwayne Jones was cast. He was an actor. But pretty much everybody else is playing like a version of themselves or they're some sort of an investor, which is wild. I mean, here actually is um, the daughter, uh, Kira Shone, talking about being told that she was going to be in this movie by her parents. They just woke her up and they're like, you're going to act.
1: One morning in 1967, I woke up. My mother woke me up and she said... Honey, you're going to flip. And I thought, what a way to wake up, you know. She's trying to, like, cajole me into getting up and going to school, like, like that's going to work. And uh, I said, why, you know, why, why am I going to flip? And she told me, she said, you're going to be in a movie. And I said, what kind of movie? And then she told me a little bit about it, and my dad came over, and he told me more about it. And I was already a horror movie junkie at that point in my life, uh, watching Chiller Theater every Saturday, and I just couldn't believe my good fortune that I was going to get to play like a little monster and kill people. What could be better? As I recall in my scenes, my dad did most of the direction, Um, maybe because he figured I feared him more than I feared George. I don't know. So, yeah, anyway, sorry, I
4: just want to kind of say that up front because I think it adds to, like, the the reality of this movie and it also lets you know how low budget this film was that they weren't even getting <laughs> actors but yeah so like there are the family in the basement um and then the young couple and then you have ben upstairs with barbara and i love the scene where he realizes they're there because you just hear the indignation in his voice that they've been down there and they're not even offering to help
5: how long you guys been down there i could use some help up here that's the cellar a it's the safest place, place. <laughs> You mean you didn't hear the racket we were making up here? How were we supposed to know what was going on? Could have been those things, for all we knew. That girl was screaming. Sure, you must know what a girl screaming sounds like. Those things don't make any noise. Anybody would know somebody if you needed help.
4: Look, it's kind of hard to hear what's going on from down there.
5: We thought we could hear screams, but for all we knew, that could have meant those things were in the house afterward. And you wouldn't come up and help?
1: Well, if there were more of them. The racket
5: sounded like the place was being ripped apart. How were we supposed to know what was going on? Well, wait a minute. You just got finished saying you couldn't hear
6: from down there. Now you say it sounds like the place was being ripped apart. It would be nice if you'd get your story straight,
5: man. All right, now you tell me. I'm not going to take that kind of a chance when we got a safe place. We luck into a safe place and you're telling us we got to risk our lives just because somebody might need help, huh?
2: Yeah, that clip articulates exactly what I was talking about, this idea of how do we react to a crisis? And I think... You know, there's so many ways. And and I, I would argue to what you said before, like, you can side with each character here a little bit. Like, I, I think I definitely feel like Ben is the hero of this film, right? Uh, ben is is strong, rational, and wants the best for this group. He wants to get out alive, but he can't get people to get on the same page because... Everybody is um, in some way maybe too focused on themselves. There's maybe there's a something narcissistic about each one of them. You know, we have Barbara who's like, she's in shock, you know, so she can't be a part of the solution. And you have this family in the basement and they just want to, protect their daughter or they just want to stay safe they don't want to be involved they don't want to they don't want to help anybody but themselves so much so that he tries the 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 father and that tries to lock ben out of the house like he's like "Uh, don't come back in here like and i think that's one of the best scenes in the film but this idea that i think we can all be one of those people at a given time in our in a crisis
4: very much because you know also carl hardiman um the guy who plays harry cooper who wants to stay in the basement He's a bully and he's a coward but he's also kind of not wrong like the basement right. is the safest place like the way that Dwayne uh, Jones's character the way that Ben saves stays alive at the end is he goes to the basement like Cooper's not totally wrong about the basement argument the house is really vulnerable no matter how many boards they're hanging up in front of windows yeah. and yet like in all these little moments I do see myself like I see especially you know in the young couple there's that scene where Tom, you know, who was also one of the only actors who was in this film who got paid. He's not even an actor. He was a musician, wow. but they just thought he was really handsome. And they're like, you have looks. Be in this movie. He was like, great. And then after that, he did a little bit of acting and he became a chiropractor. Um, and the girl playing his girlfriend is a receptionist, just a real life receptionist. Yeah. Um, they have that conversation when he's going to go outside and try to help Ben get to the gas pump where she's like, do you have to go? Like, I love you. I want you to stay alive. Please just stay alive. And I can absolutely see myself wanting to do that. You know, if
2: whether or not I'm the girl
4: being like, don't leave or trying to find the nerve to like go outside and do it myself. But this idea of reluctant heroism of I can't sacrifice you. You mean everything to me.
0: Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour. We never know how we're going to react in a moment, right? Uh, and, and no reaction is wrong. And I think what is so great about horror is when you see people reacting in a real way You know, you you've automatically feel that you are that person. But you also see people in horror films like the big trope is like, oh, don't go in there. Don't go. We know don't go in there. But there is that instinct of all of us to be like, I should go back in there. Right. Like it's like (laughs) it's it is irrational. It is irrational. We know the we know the risks. I mean, we are living in a time right now where we know the risks, but people are reckless around them because of whatever reason. Right. So logic always doesn't dictate uh, how we are going to react, and I think this movie does a great job of encapsulating that. And and uh, and because the villains are not even villains, I mean, are they flesh eaters? They have no, they have no point of view. They have no purpose. They're just trying to survive, right? They they like so it it even makes it um it makes it more interesting because you can't rationalize with them. There is no way out. It's just about how can we just keep on surviving until we are rescued or or killed
4: it's true and what i really respect about the way the deaths happen here is that they aren't even played out in that kind of okay you know when you're watching a bad horror film and you're like mm. oh that person went to get a soda they're definitely right. gonna die now like watch them walking and here we go it's taking five minutes we know what's gonna happen why is this taking so long like it's so obvious don't
2: get in that tanning bed
4: yeah, exactly. Where the deaths are just, they take forever to happen and they're not even interesting or exciting. What Romero does with death here is he makes it really sudden. Like, it's its not like a ton of creeping, horrible buildup. The one that really pops out to me is when the young couple does go outside to go to the gas tank. And, you know, they're in this truck. They've actually been splashing, splashing gasoline around. There's matches. You can bet that something bad is going to happen. And yet their death comes so quickly. Like they're trying to get out of the car. Her jacket is stuck and boom, like, that's it. It's not even like my jacket's stuck. I'm pulling on you, but it's still stuck. I'm pulling on you. It doesn't even drag it out like that. I mean, listen, how quick it happens. I mean, that is just immediate. There, there's an immediacy there that I find extra terrifying. Even just the way Barbara sees her brother and then beat, beat, gone. She's like pulled through the door. We never see her again. It doesn't torture us. And because it doesn't torture us, it almost feels worse.
2: Well, let's talk about the end. I mean, because the end is this death that is honestly, didn't I didn't see it coming. I did not know that Ben was going to be killed like that. By a gang of you know uh, militia, so, militia, a militia, a militia. I mean, and it's and again, you'd be an idiot not to talk about the comparisons of what's going on today versus. I think that I think a lot of horror films do have uh, parallels to what's going on in society. I think we are going through similar times as this film was made. But to see that last moment and just see, they'll never know. They'll never know what happened. His death, he is nobody. He is nothing to them. Like, they thought something. They made a split-second decision. They didn't even investigate. They shot first, um, which might have been the right way. Again, this movie has interesting messages. It's like, you know, they're doing their best to stop this, you know, zombie apocalypse. But at the same time, you know, they kill a hero.
4: Let's play that scene, actually, and then let's really talk about it.
5: Let's go check out the house, man. There's something there. I heard a noise. All right, Vince. Hit him in the head. Right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire.
4: Now, first, we should say, like, this was and wasn't the ending forever. You know, when George Romero was trying to sell this movie, he was taking it out. And a lot of people, you know, Columbia Pictures being one. um, Arkoff, remember when we were talking about American international producers who made Cooley High? That guy, Arkoff was like, I would take this film if you reshot the ending. And Romero was like, I am sticking to this ending. This is the ending. We don't want to restore order. This is not a horror film that will be where the hero will live. And yet they did kind of go back and forth on that for a little bit. There was a version of this ending where Ben died, but then you realize that Barbara's alive. She came out of the basement. There was an ending where Ben died, but then you realize that uh, the girl zombie, that little that the little, ba- yeah, the little yeah. baby girl is still alive and she's kind of creeping around. And sometimes even while they were making it, I think Romero himself was like, are we doing the right thing by killing Ben here at the end? You know, especially as brutally as they are. Like when you when it switches to, again, news photography, you know, to like the cruelty of just seeing people with metal hooks by his body, like stiff images of men stabbing him, you know, treating him like a piece of meat. That matter of fact news style of it, I think, makes it more ghastly. You know, to see the people with the gasoline, they're about to light them on fire. It's it's really it's like you're watching images from Vietnam, honestly, which I think a lot of people were thinking of in 1968 when they saw this film.
2: And just to kind of show you how Carl Hardiman uh, was used in this film, he also took those pictures. So this guy was doing a little bit of everything. <laughs> I, I do think there's something really interesting at play with George Romero and who he was because he cast a Black actor as a lead in this film, which I think he did because he liked Dwayne Jones and he just thought, oh, he'd be great for this part. Um, Not, I don't think realizing what that does to the film because it seems so much more progressive, but it also makes the weight of what it's saying that much heavier.
4: Yeah, I mean, I feel like Romero is a really progressive guy,
2: Mm -hmm. like
4: flat out. I mean, you know, he has said over and over again, like I cast Dwayne because he was just the best actor we met. Like he was great. And so he was our great actor and I want to put him in. And yet he also did say that, you know, at the time he was aware that, and these are his words now, if there was a film with a black actor in it, it usually had a racial theme. And that consciously I resisted writing new dialogue because he happened to be black. We just shot the script. Like he wanted to do, I think, another type of progressive move which is just cast a great actor and like let him be in a film that is not about racism that is just about his performance about his character you know let this actor just be treated like anybody else and i I think there is a i think that is actually like really modern in a way to not have to make his skin and skin color an issue which is something that Dwayne jones was kind of talking about like he was like it meant a lot to me said this is from Dwayne like it meant a lot to me that he was cast not because of the color of his skin and yet he said that he was aware that because i was black it would give a different historic element of the film
2: well i also think you know Dwayne jones knows you know the experience and how he'll be perceived better than this primarily white crew and and he brought up like I don't think I should be as angry here. I I don't think I should hit Barbara. You know, um, because if we see that, you know, what is it saying here? And and, you know, that's where George Romero probably too progressive at a point saying, like, no, 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 you should hit her. It's cool and hip that we're doing that because we're we're so open to that. It's not about anything bigger, but the truth is, is that's something that Romero regretted. He's like, you know, I should have maybe paid a little bit more attention to his concerns of of this portrayal. And again, I think this portrayal is, I think he's a great actor. And I'm surprised to see that he didn't get many parts after this, considering how big of a success this film was. But, um, you know, I can only imagine how it was received to certain people at at, at this point to see this on screen.
4: Yeah, I mean, let's play that punching scene. I mean, what you're going to hear is Barbara slapping Ben, and then Ben... Punching her really hard and knocking her unconscious. We better go out and get him. We have to go out and get Johnny. He's out there. Please, don't you hear me? We've got to go out and get him. Please!
0: We have got to go get Johnny! Please help me! Please!
6: Don't you know what's going on out there? This is no Sunday school
5: picnic. Don't
6: you
0: understand? My brother is alone.
5: Your brother is dead. No! My brother is not dead!
4: Now, a a few things. I mean, in the script, the way that it was intended was that Barbara was actually going to hit him several times. And, like, kind of, mm. Mm, I, ugh, I hate, I'm not even using the word deserving in this context, but, you know, kind of build up the stakes to try to make it right. more understandable, I suppose, why he would hit back. Um, but Ben was, like, honestly, like, you hit me once and that's it. Like, you're not going to hit me twice. But he really kept saying, like, I don't think this character would do this. I don't think this character would punch her. I don't think this is in character at all. And finally, Romero was just like, listen, we need her to be unconscious. And this is how it's got to right. go. But they make this really interesting choice after that. You know, when Barbara wakes up, she has a huge bruise. Like, you never forget that she has been punched. Like, you're always aware. I think there are movies where somebody throws a punch, and you're like, ha ha, and then they wake up and everything's fine. Like, her jaw is black and blue for the entire rest of the movie, a reminder of what has been happening. And I don't know what to make of that. You know, it, it, it haunts me a little bit, that bruise. And yet he almost doesn't seem to hit her out of anger, really?
2: No, it seems like that yeah. kind of like, calm down, calm down, like that kind of what you see yeah. in films, like when you splash cold water on your face, you you slap a woman to make her calm, the very Chinatown kind yeah. of dealing with things, you know?
4: You're right, like you're right, you're right, you're right. Because I think in movies, we've seen a gazillion people get hit. We've seen a gazillion people at least slap women, but it's rare to see somebody punch a woman. And also, I mean, for audiences seeing this, this is coming out, Really, the same year that Sidney Poitier is is hitting back in um, in the heat of the night. I mean, they kind of just go together, like in the heat of the night of the Living Dead. Like we're going right. to fight back now, and audiences are going to be like, "Holy shit! Holy shit! Really?"
2: But then at the end of the film, and I know it's not this, but you have to understand. I think, you know, we're still we're we're in the middle of a civil rights movement. Emmett Till is killed about 10 years before this, you know, by a, a group of white men for perceived, uh, you know, offense to a woman. Like there is there are some weighty things going on when you see a group of white men with shotguns. And I know they're not coming after him. Right. But they're also not asking questions. They're also not looking at the situation. They're also not um really doing a thorough job. They're just, they are as zombified as the zombies. They are killing machines too. Just cock it, shoot it, cock it, shoot it. And so there is something really interesting to kind of push this metaphor forward about we also have the ability to be these zombies, you know, or or like, so it's like, yes, the zombies came back from the dead, but a group of people that get power from each other, like a militia, are acting the exact same way. And we see the militia viewed yeah. and shot the same way as the zombies. Yeah, and they're, it's they're like,
4: walking across the grass just the yeah. same and I think there even was a version of the script where, at the end, they realized they shot a hero. And they're like, it's our one mistake. We have killed a hero. And they decided not to run with that either. It, You know, Dwayne Jones actually did talk to Romero about it. He's like, listen, here's the thing. Like, that these these are his words again. I convinced George that the black community would rather see me dead than saved after all that had gone on in a corny and symbolically confusing way. And he was like, it is confusing, you know, but, like, I can't – they – I think what he's trying to say is like they won't buy a happy ending here if it is me, you know. Right. And and oh, and you know into into Romero and Russo, you know, who co-wrote the script and was one of the major producers, John Russo. Who I don't think gets enough credit in the formation of this movie. They were also a little bit calculating. They're like, you know, what if it has an ending like that where Ben dies, then we know that people are going to leave the theater and whether they like that ending or not, they're going to talk about it. Like. It will make people talk about our film because they'll be arguing like was that the right ending?
2: Yeah, and I think that that is again uh, a staple of horror, you know, um you know, a lot of the times, uh you know we will see like the final girl, right? That's the trope like mm-hmm. the virginal girl gets away, um, but I think we also see this other more dire ending where. No one gets away, you know, or it's eluded that no one yeah. gets away. I think that was the original ending of Get Out, uh, and they changed it, you know, um, similarities there, you know, I think that there, you know, it's, I think there's something interesting about horror where you can kill a lead character and still leave fulfilled because there's something about it will overtake us, everything will overtake us. There, you know, like, you know, I think the 90s definitely embraced the one will live and don't get too attached to the rest, but, uh, but I also feel like that kind of somber end, it does something that sci-fi doesn't often do. I think sci-fi looks at things in a more positive way, but horror can allow you to sit in that. And when you leave this movie, it, it weighs on you. I mean, and I think that he knows that because they take that moment with all the footage, the stills, like we're existing. We're, it's not a quick shot and it's over. We linger. We linger probably most on his body out of yeah. anyone else. We know him the best in a way.
4: It's true. And, you know, I don't like to get moralistic about films that much. But to me, the most immoral kind of horror film are the ones where the people just suck and you can't wait for them to die. I really don't like those. Like, I really don't like it. Like, look at these obnoxious teenagers and they're all right. If we make them
2: unlikable enough, then you won't care if you die. But that's that defeats the purpose, I think.
4: Exactly. I feel like a lot of 2000s horror was like that. Like, ha ha, we're just going to laugh at these walking meat sacks. And I find that really revolting. Like, I'd rather go on that emotional journey of caring about a person. And even if the worst happens to them, like, it's earned. You know, all the emotions in this film are completely earned.
0: Justin and So Good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince. Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem.
6: Of a detour.
2: You know, one of the other films that I just want to just call attention to that came out this year that I think is dealing with similar issues uh, is Planet of the Apes, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think Planet of the Apes uh, is embracing this idea of um, we're going to destroy ourselves. And here is what that looks like. And here is our hero that we think, you know, is is, you know, on a different planet, and he realizes, no, no, he's actually on his own planet. Like, there's something really interesting about these three films in conversation, the Sidney Poitier, I Guess Is Coming to Dinner, uh, Night of the Living Dead, and Planet of the Apes, all which are talking about similar ideas. We will destroy ourselves, whether that is through nuclear war, whether that is through um, not working together, whether that is, you know, more simply put with uh, Sidney Poitier, like, what is actually going on, you know, what is, like... Um, I love that we can tell that story in three different ways. And, and, and for the two genre films, they're gi- gigantically successful. You know, maybe that that helps us. And I always believe that, like, if you can tell something in a genre that is enjoyable, the lesson gets through a little bit more, right? It's like, I think Star Trek did a great job of that. Like, oh, shit, right. What is the difference of this? Like, you, you like, put it in a way that you look at how ridiculous it is because they step one step back from it.
4: Yeah, very much. I mean, if there is a sadness about this year, which I feel like is the most similar year to 1968 that I've ever lived through and hopefully will ever live through, it's that because of the pandemic, we can't make as much art about what we're going through. And we're almost missing out on all of the films of this year, all of the stories that we would have told otherwise, you know, and and maybe when we're finally ready to make them or physically able to actually make them like full on without, without all of the hindrances. We won't want to hear it anymore. We'll be like, We're well, just, we, I, we don't want to go back to where that was. But I think,
2: I think, yeah, you might be right. I think that we probably have a an instinct right now in media to tell this story. I've read so many synopses and heard people speak about, oh, I'm going to do my quarantine movie. This is a movie in quarantine. It takes us over Zoom. It's like, I don't know if I want to see that. I want to see the Planet of the Apes version of that right yeah. on some level like how do you go larger with it and and by the way do we even need to because you can see us in these classic films as well like the 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 times the the years have changed but the times haven't in a way um and to see everybody caught in a house fighting with each other on how to act in the outside world and what's going on in the outside world and and watching the news and 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 feeling like this push and pull of where did you know what did you know let's do this let's yeah. not do this you know chasing I'm gonna back the, to the dr
4: fauci of of the outside yeah. world like what's happening what's going on with venus i can't talk to you i mean
2: yeah i've never felt more connected to something uh by the way yeah, uh, yeah what if yeah. we don't make our own
4: art but we just watch and respect and talk about the art of the past I mean that I also yeah. make our own, but at least we have a lot to look at.
2: I think we could do both. I think to me, I haven't seen this film you know before now. Yeah. I've heard of it, obviously know George Romero, but seeing this film is like, oh wow, this is a, we can have this conversation that's as relevant and as alive to me right now, uh, you know, than as it, I think it could have been in the in the '60s.
4: And you know, one of the things I also kept thinking about watching this is it's almost like a secession movie, and not that I'm like secession, absolutely, but. Mm-hmm. Honestly, my God, I can't take much more minority rule. And if like, if like progressive cities are going to continue to be under minority rule in a decade, like I'm over this. And so when they're talking about like in this clip, for example, like you're the boss of this and you're the boss of this. I was like, oh, this is the fight of like California being like, OK, fine. Y'all, y'all can keep McConnell. We're going to be over here.
5: Listen, I got a kid down there. She she can't possibly I couldn't bring her up here. She can't possibly take all the racket. Those those things smashing through the windows. Well, you're her father. If you're stupid
6: enough to go die in that trap, that's your business. However, I am not stupid enough to follow you. It is tough for the kid that old man is so stupid. Now, you get the hell down in the cellar. You can be the boss down there. I'm boss up here.
5: You bastards. You know, I won't open this door again. I mean it. Mr. Cooper, with your help, we could... With my help. Let him go, man. His mind is made up. Just let him go.
4: And yes, one of the things that I I think is interesting about a a line that you hear in that clip is, you know, as much as I do believe Romero that he's like, I didn't change the script that much. I just let, you know, Dwayne play it the way that Dwayne would have, you know, Dwayne being a guy who had studied like in in Sweden and Italy or uh, France, spoke several languages, was getting his master's at the time, I believe, in communications, you know, that he let Dwayne play that character as educated and like not stereotypical as he wanted when it was like originally like just like a kind of lame truck driver. Mm -hmm. As much as he said he didn't change the script to make it about race, there's that one little bit in there where you hear um, Harry Cooper call Ben you bastards, that plural, right? And the way he pluralizes it. That's the one line where I feel like this script, improv or not, I'm not sure, is making this about race. He doesn't he's pluralizing Ben, he's not seeing Ben as an individual in that moment.
2: Well, I mean, look, this is a lone black man in a house full of white people, right? And and as much as the performance of the dialogue doesn't truly acknowledge it and we don't call it out, it's there. Right, and I think you know we've lived for a long time in a in a society where people are like, "Well, I don't see color. I don't see color," but you do, and it's okay to see color. It's the idea is that we have to understand where people are coming from, and and it does affect the worlds that we live in. So, in a way, what's so kind of interesting about that is, yes, there is this giant thing going on, this zombie attack, but also underneath that there's probably this subtle racism going on because of the time that they're doing the movie. Not saying the actors are, but that's what's going on in society. This movie takes place in present day, right? So I feel like there's two levels of things at play. And I also, I, I would, I'd have to say that I feel like that character, the father character isn't listening to him and doesn't really believe in him because He is a person of color. You don't have to say it. You don't have to make it about being racist. You don't like it does. The movie is not racist, but it reflects attitudes that are definitely prevalent at that time. A white man listening to a black man to about how to be safe and how to live is is revolutionary, I think, uh, you know, at that time.
4: And from what we know about Cooper, even just through his wife's eyes. You know, like knowing that that Carl Hardiman and Marilyn Eastman are married when they're playing Harry and Helen is striking because they bring this animosity to it. You know, they stayed together for the rest of their lives. Um, But that she lets us know just in her brief scenes with him that he that she knows that he's a jerk, that they're not in a happy marriage, that he's not a guy who who listens, that he's a selfish guy who's cowardly and won't listen to people. And I appreciate that. I mean, some people have also said that, like, one of the things that Romero is saying here is that this film is about, you know, the failure of the nuclear family. Like, here we have, like, the Coopers and their daughter who are at the end of the movie literally killing each other, stabbing each other, dying out of their own hand. One of the one flourishes in this movie, by the way, in, in a movie that is otherwise very documentary style or, like, dramatic camera movement is the sound that you hear when – um When young Karen is stabbing her mother. I just want to play that because it's so crazy. case by the way of like the little girl not really knowing what's happening like she has a spade and she said that her dad was mostly directing her and that she was just stabbing a pillow over and over again and not stabbing her mom but that they were um squirting chocolate syrup in her face you know to make it be like blood everywhere you know that is one of the advantages of having to shoot this on like very low cheap black and white footage is that they could get away with like the blood is chocolate syrup, or sometimes the blood is ink. Like, it doesn't have to even be cohesive. You can no, eat but- a ham bone on camera. That's fine. Like, it helped them keep it cheap. You know, having no, I mean, moments helped it make it seem more exciting. Yeah.
2: I mean, there's some, I think there's a funny moment where it looks like someone's taking a piece of intestine and putting it in their pocket. Um, but this movie, when I realized that it <laughs> came out the same. <laughs> when I realized it came out at the same time as um, Planet of the Apes, I was like, oh, wow they really did embrace this thing that makes the film feel a little bit older than it is. It probably feels more of the 50s than it does the 60s. Um, but it you're right. It makes the violence a little bit more digestible. And this movie is violent. I mean, it's mm-hmm. one of the first films to graphically depict violent murders on screen. Uh, it also, you know, they they do this stuff, like they covered um, a ham in like Bosco, which is like a chocolate syrup. And, you know, they said that the actors eating the chocolate-covered ham, it made them look nauseous, which actually Mm. even helped the production value because they look like, oh, they are going to vomit. Like So they were using all that sort of stuff. And I love the idea that, again, we're talking about this new idea. We all know zombies now. We all know that they eat flesh. But when they were coming up with this idea... By the way, the idea of how this movie even came together is so wild. I mean, at one point it was going to be like a teenage movie about an alien uh, where it was good, like it was so bizarre. Like the, uh, But anyway, yeah, it was like uh, a
4: comedy. It was like rebel without a cause, but in space. But like these teenagers had a pet monster that they called the yes, mess who was supposed mess. To, like a bunch of noodles who ate trash.
2: <laughs> I mean, so, so crazy. I mean, that's uh, what happens
4: when you come up with an idea by committee. You know, like like yes. um, Russ, uh, this guy, um, Russell Strainer, who played Johnny, who was, of course, one of the producers, he was like, I was kind of bummed we had to do a horror movie for our first one. I thought it was sort of, it was low class. Like, But they're just like, I don't know. We got to make something that sells. This is what we're doing. Even though they tried, like, some pretentious names, at some point they are going to call it Night of
2: Anubis after the Egyptian Oh, nod. yes, I read that. Yes. Well, I mean, but just going back to this idea that, like, they were forced to take what we know and try to figure out how to do it differently. So, like, uh, I Am Legend vampires. We've seen that. So he's like, okay, right, well, what haven't we seen? All right, well, the dead are coming back to life. That's interesting. But what haven't we seen? Oh, uh, we haven't seen, like, someone eat, like, cannibalism. That's scary, right? Like, and, like, vamp- like, a vampire isn't cannibal. It's, like, sucking your blood. But, like, what's worse than sucking your blood? Being eaten alive. And I think... Whatever that was, however they tapped into that, like the like that seems to me like a great writer's room pitch. That is a good by yeah. committee. Well, what could be worse? How about this? How about that? How about this? And and now we have, uh, I mean, a genre based around flesh eating creatures, which is amazing. I mean, yeah. you know, you know, but they or not amazing. The but,
4: rules, like you were saying, yeah. they created that rule. They created the like you can only kill them by shooting them in the head rule. They created a rule that lasted for, uh, you know. 35 years that they have to walk really slowly. This is Romero insisting that they should still just walk really slowly.
3: Zombies cannot run. I say this definitively. As the grandfather or the godfather of zombies, zombies cannot run. So anyone who has a zombie running, don't listen to that person. Their ankles would snap. I mean, you know, what did they do? Go and join a spa the moment they uh, rose from the dead? Give me a break.
4: I think at the end of the day, I'm just in so much awe that this little film that was built by committee, you know, very much built by committee, ended up establishing rules that shaped horror forevermore, you know, that really created an archetype. I mean, when you're talking about a movie that was so low budget, they filmed it in this house because they could rent it for three hundred dollars a month and it was going to be demolished anyway. So the owner was like, I'm going to tear it down. Give me three hundred bucks a month, and you can just trash the place. And then they're like, "Great!" They took fifty bucks. They went to Goodwill. They decorated it. They donated the rest of theirs. Like they donated their own clothes to put it in the closets. Like that's how low budget it was. It was so low budget they could only shoot
2: this. How low on, budget was it?
4: So low budget they could only shoot it on weekends. It took them seven months. They were just driving out there Amy, thirty miles one way. Shoot this on the weekends. They would get there is, sometimes, and like kids would have broken life. the windows.
2: Amy, this is like seriously like my life. My first movie I ever did was a movie called Blackballed with Rob Cordry and Rob Riggle and and Hubel and a a bunch of people. Um, And it was all like the New York improv community. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we all had jobs. And this movie that we made, we shot on weekends. We would drive all the way up to upstate New York to a paintball field and we would shoot (laughs) it. And it took us months and months and months. And we had um, basically a 25 page script. Uh, that we all improvised, we were doing 45 to 50 minute scenes scenes. Wow. I think it was like a, I think it was like 120 hours of footage that was cut down, and we, we eventually uh, got the film into to South by Southwest and we won the audience award there with that film. But this idea of collaboration on independent film, I love it, and that I, I do a lot of indie film and I've done a lot of more mainstream things, but I think the best experiences I've had is when everyone is bringing something to the table. I mean, it's sort of like, oh, I brought this and I'm doing this and and it and it also shows a director who can rein in. I I'm, I'm always in the in the mindset whenever I direct anything or or produce anything which is like hire the best people and trust their instincts mm-hmm. and then corral them to what you want your picture to be. But, you know, and I think there's other people out there that are, no, I want a green piece of paper on top of a yellow folder and it has to have a blue pen on top of it. And that is fine. And there are people that are like that, but I also feel like the energy of a crew when you're not getting paid is when everyone's ideas can kind of come in when you're trying to figure out an effect shot. The, you know, everyone's opinion is valid and at some point, the director, producer has to, really the director has to step in and go, all right, we're going to go with that one. Or We're going to yeah. move on. But I think, to me, you can make art by committee as long as the person at the front of it understands what they are trying to make, right? Because then it's like, let's take the best idea to make this bigger idea. Like they always said that, like, uh, like Gary Shanling on Larry Sanders, would take uh, a line from Hitler if it was funny enough. Like, there's <laughs> no... Like, yeah, everyone is equal. Like, if you we can, we can make it better... Would you translate it from the original German? Oh, <laughs> well, look, Hitler was multilingual, I think. Uh, but no, but I, I think... I like that idea, and I, I guess I've, to this day, two months before this thing started, you know, have had that experience, and I think that that is... Uh, I don't know. Just calling yeah. out that I do believe that that can come together and, and be a part of this. And I think that underlines this entire film in the way of saying, I'm not for secession. I want to work together. How can we do it more effectively? How can we all build together and not fight against? And I think the best experiences I've ever had is that camaraderie. And and we are all in it together. Even when we have done bad shit, we've all been in it together. Um, and I think that, uh, in a weird way, independent filmmakers can tell that story in a very unique perspective because they are living it as they are doing it
4: well first i want to say very belatedly congratulations on winning the south by southwest audience awarded that movie that's amazing dude thank you (laughs) and second you know who would agree with you wholeheartedly especially when it comes to horror films is stephen king like stephen king once said that most really good horror movies are low budget affairs that are cooked up in someone's basement or garage. You know, he pointed to *Night of the Living Dead*, *Texas Chainsaw Massacre*, *Blair Witch Project*, and *Halloween* as this example of like all of those films are actually very collaboratively made. You know, made with American nothing, movie and that ver that verite feel of them, and that like you know, we got our fingernails dirty to make this film. It is real. Is so much scarier than any like thirty million dollar kind of glossy nightmare. Absolutely, yeah.
2: I love. You would never be able to get these are cannibalistic, flesh eating, you know, creatures in a studio movie. I just don't think you would. I don't think there's some things you have to push forward. I I feel like that's what happened in Bonnie Mm -hmm. and Clyde when we talked about that. Like sometimes the idea that becomes the new norm has to be. Injected from the outside because no one wants to make that choice, and this movie would not have been made the same way. This movie would have brought Ben back to life. This movie probably wouldn't have cast Ben in a studio film. Like, there's so many choices here across the board. All the rough edges of it, the even like the use of bastards. Like, there is this idea. Like, there is a lot coming on here because it's not going through a committee of people going, "Is this okay?" Exactly. You know, it's, you it's know, almost yeah.
4: better in its imperfections. Like this line, like this line that I just absolutely love from the sheriff.
2: Chief, uh, if I were surrounded by
5: six or eight of these things, would I stand a chance with them? Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot them in the head. That's a sure way to kill them. If you don't get yourself a club or a torch, beat them or burn them, they go up pretty easy. Well, Chief McClellan, how long do you think it will take you until you get the situation under control? Well, that's pretty hard to say. We don't know how many of them there are. We know when we find them, we can kill them. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up.
4: By the way, I have to say, there's one other job that Romero had before he made this movie that is maybe my favorite of all of George Romero's jobs. Um, George Romero used to make shorts for Mr. Rogers. By Did the you? way, I thought you were
2: I, for one second. I I thought you meant like make shorts for Mister Rogers, like like cargo pants shorts. Yeah, and that idea that was just really funny to me. <laughs> uh, I think I know where you're going with this, and I cannot wait because this is this fact blew my mind. So Go ahead.
4: Yeah, I mean, basically, Fred Rogers when he was doing his television show uh, out of Pennsylvania, he worked with all of the local talent, all the young cameramen. And PBS is really mean and keeps taking down all of the clips of, um, of the stuff that, <laughs> that George Romero made for, um, for Mr. Rogers. But you can hear a little tiny bit of it in this clip that's taken from a TV show about it.
2: And the kind eyes
5: <laughs> of the people in the operating room. Even though they wore masks, I could
2: see their kind eyes. Mr. Rogers got a tonsillectomy. <laughs> that's yours. That's me. Mr. Rogers
3: gets a tonsillectomy brought to you by George A. Romero. Yeah, right, that's a- How does that happen? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know why they called me. <laughs> Most of the, of the people that are working professionals in media today from Pittsburgh worked for Fred. All of us started with Fred. Fred was a wonderful... He's a wonderful
4: guy. So, yeah, I love the fact that George Romero was doing uh, Mr. Rogers gets a tonsillectomy and how a light bulb gets made. (laughs) Uh, I mean, honestly, like I've seen the whole Mr. Rogers gets a tonsillectomy and it is pretty terrifying. It's very still. I can't imagine how a child would have watched that. It's like Mr. Rogers with masks on. I, I wish that movie was still around because it feels very it makes going to the hospital seem airless and not exactly comfortable but like nothing bad can happen here because it's so dull i suppose uh yeah but to see mr mr rogers you know with a little like laying down somebody else taking care of him is a bit emotional
2: well i mean mr rogers i mean i've watched it with my children you know and it's amazing how he still works uh in the sense of like calming. It, it calmed me as a child. But watching the episode with Coco, the gorilla, like allowing himself to really be manhandled by Coco is is pretty mm-hmm. amazing. Like what he did. Uh, Coco,
4: um, Coco was a bit of a creep.
2: Uh, Well, sure, I guess a, a certain level. He's an animal. He's a, we can't judge animals for being animals. Uh, <laughs> but all right. All right. All right. So um, but I thought you were going to talk about the idea that the original Barbara was supposed to be Lady Evelyn, but Mr. Rogers wouldn't let her.
4: Yeah. Mr. Rogers was like, yeah, um, Romero wanted to put um, Betty Everlyn, who was playing uh, Lady Everlyn, either in the film as Barbara or as Judy. But Mr. Rogers was like, no, which was actually pretty smart, because at the time, a little film like Night of the Living Dead was usually played as a Saturday afternoon matinee. So like little kids would go to the theater on a Saturday. This is, again, before the rating Mm -hmm. system. And little kids were watching Night of the Living Dead. Yes. And they I mean, were
2: getting freaked the fuck out. the
4: fuck out. Like, Roger Ebert wrote a piece about this that was just like, what the hell? Like, I saw a seven-year-old girl crying. Why is this movie getting played? Like, he was terrified that it was getting I mean, this movie... Children.
2: This movie didn't have a rating. It's one of the last films not to have a rating, which is crazy to me. But yeah, I I, I think, you know, this is in a time where I feel like they were like, oh yeah, it's a zombie movie, it's a horror movie, whatever, the kids will like it, just put it, you know. Uh, again, so it, it does also kind of move up our culture and how we view films and, and uh, everything like that. But I mean, Mr. Rogers running his set with an iron fist, as we've seen um, through that documentary, like he definitely protected the images of the people on that show. And I think to good effect because they needed to stay pristine in the minds of children and they couldn't get caught in controversy outside of the show. And while that, you know, I have some issues with the way that he held people back, I also feel like uh, probably better for the show and these actors because uh, the legacy never was tarnished in any way.
4: That's fair. I mean, it also, it's hard to argue that if Betty Everlyn had been in Night of the Living Dead, it would have changed her career because right. kind of, I, I think one of the sad notes of this being hailed as a defining amateur production is that at the end of it, when it was really successful, people are like, wow, these amateurs made a great film. It must all be George Romero, you know, kind of ignoring yeah. most of the producers and the amateur label. Became so important to the film's identity that I think nobody took any of the cast members seriously, even the ones who were real actors like Dwayne Jones himself has kind of said, you know, this amateur ended up defining all of us. And while it made Romero look brilliant, it trapped the rest of us as amateurs. Nobody. He was a serious actor. He taught acting. Nobody took him seriously as an actor. And because of that, you know, he did make a couple more films, but. He also here in this interview talked about why he decided to pull back and not even be that public of a face.
6: So I wouldn't want anyone to think that I am so arrogant as not to be grateful mm. for the acclaim they have given me and the film. And it should never be misconstrued that my enigmatic, mysterious persona that I have, some in some instances, deliberately created just to have the space in which mm. to have a private life is... A lack of gratitude. It's not, but it is my absolute insistence that I be seen as a total human being, and not as Ben. Yeah. Ben didn't even really have a biography. I mean, where was he coming from? Yeah,
1: yeah. He just well, pulled was he? up in
6: front of the house. Really?
1: Just there, yeah.
6: You know, yeah. Ben was just passing through. Um,
3: <clears throat> have you seen any of the other Living Dead pictures?
6: Not only have I never seen any of the other living dead pictures, I have never seen another George Romero picture. But then I've never seen a Woody Allen or an Eddie Murphy picture either. So, I mean, it's not that I Mm. am avoiding them.
4: Now, of course, we're going to see him again next week, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm. But it's interesting. Like when you make a horror film like this, you can kind of live your whole life being like, I was zombie number one. I'll sign your autograph for 30 bucks. And that yes. Dwayne made a d- deliberate decision to not do that is interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to talk about one other thing. We've talked a lot about how this movie really set the blueprint for the modern zombie or what we know of this genre. But I also set the blueprint for someone like Lloyd Kaufman, don't you think? Like I mm, I was thinking about... I love Lloyd. I, Lloyd is such an interesting character. He uh, was and is the head of Troma Films, which is this... Uh, schlock factory. I don't know how you would call it. It, They make, you know, big, bold, silly, goofy horror movies like Sergeant Kabuki Man, The Toxic Avenger. Lloyd Kaufman, in many ways, is like the B-level George Romero. Would you agree with that? Or, you know, thoughts?
4: I mean, I think they're both just having fun with the act of making films. You know, Mm -hmm. like, even in the way that George Romero up until like the two thousands didn't even feel obligated to keep making dead films more than once every 10 years, you know,
0: like
4: he's like, I'll come in and I'll have something I'm going to say about like consumerism in Dawn of the dead, you know, in like 1978, but they, yeah, they don't seem to make movies for any other reason than the pleasure of it, the act, the creation. Well then,
2: well then let me bring it to one other person. If I jump forward. So if I go, George Romero is to, uh, Lloyd Kaufman. And then do I go, do those two breed Jason Blum and Blumhouse? Because mm. kind of merging together, taking points about society, making films that are saying something with the fun, big ideas, and then marketing them in this way where, you know, Blumhouse, I think I think the, the not the dig, but the, the, the quick pitch on them is like, we'll make five movies for a million bucks, and if one makes a hundred million we have been successful and the rest we can all dump on VOD and who cares and we talked about Invisible Man early on which is a Blumhouse and and we've seen them kind of making so many of these horror films and being a factory for either people to do a comeback like M Night to do something a little bit different to expand you see it to be like giving somebody like Jordan Peele a voice you see them launching actors like so is this the evolution is this like that chart of like you know, monkey to man of horror? Like, you know, did did Blum kind of go like, oh, I think we could just merge all this together? And I know there's other people along the way, like the Wes Cravens and things like that, but as I think of them as three voices that are doing something interesting, I think there's an interesting line there between those three.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think Blum is a really interesting, and... Very important figure in modern film. I did a profile on him for the LA Weekly. I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, because at that moment, I, f- I especially felt like studio filmmaking was off base. Stuff was like too expensive. Mm-hmm. Nobody was taking risks to greenlight anything interesting. And the idea that Blum was like, if it's under five million dollars, we're good. You know, right? And he said, and I don't know completely how true this is from now. What I've heard about filmmakers working with him that like. If it's that cheap, he would give his filmmakers complete creative control. Like, do whatever you want. Like, if it's $5 million, I'm not that scared. I'm pretty sure we can make our money back. Um, but that film really needed that freshness. Like, the ability for somebody to make a movie with a low, without a budget to take risks. Because otherwise, I feel like filmmaking is getting so stagnant. And that mom yeah. is able to release a lot of his best ones through Universal. So they have, like, a studio kind of imprint on that, The studio advertising I would rather have film go in that direction than go more towards the Avengers direction because I think that's where we're going to get cool stuff. Also, I think Blum is just an interesting guy in general. Like his dad was the art dealer who made the Andy Warhol Campbell soup cans a thing. Like he comes wow. from a family that knows how to create like stuff that becomes pop culture totems. And he's also just like a brilliantly weird guy. Like, okay, I have there's two Blum fa- fun facts that I really love and I got to witness one of them. He uh, took a big van and he tricked it out so that the inside oh, of it Oh, I was love an this. Office. Yes. Like he mm-hmm. has a, a printer fax machine in the passenger seat. He has desks and like TV set up inside and it's his roving office. So when he has to go to meetings, which you have to all the time in California and you're stuck in traffic, he was like, I get work done in my van. And also my favorite thing about him is when he flies, he doesn't fly first class. He built like this mattress Um, This kind of inflatable mattress that he takes with him to coach seats and he buys three coach seats in the middle of a plane and then he inflates this mattress and then he sleeps on the coach seats while he flies um, on like overseas flights. I mean, it's so much cheaper than like getting a first class seat to like build his own thing. I just like the way his mind works a lot. I really respect it.
2: I, I mean, I love everything about that. I just love that idea that we can still make movies like this that can be these giant, giant hits. And ultimately, that's what I want to see in comedy. I I talked about this for three hours on uh, on blank check podcast with Manzukis, um, because I believe that like we need to be doing this more across the board, experimenting mm-hmm. and trying things, and and not making it all about what the market will bear, but trying to do things that are different to challenge what the market will bear. And I think that that honestly, where I'm. You know, obvi- it's interesting to see that Coming to America 2 is now on Amazon and they bought it for $125 million. I would rather see some more chances being taken. Like, I think that the way that Netflix gave Randall Park that movie with Ali Wong, it was like, more of that, please. More, more smaller films that we could take chances on in the comedy space. But horror has always been at the forefront. You know, we're talking about this movie. It's a legendary film. But were there people out there that didn't like this film?
4: Well, yeah, that's the thing. You're at the vanguard and people are not always going to like it, but you muscle on. I mean, so one of the biggest pans for Night of Living Dead came from Variety magazine and Variety magazine as a backstory, the critic from Variety came to the premiere of Night of the Living Dead and then publicly yelled at the distributors for not giving them an advance preview and making them come to the premiere. Because this is like a weird thing, but like sometimes critics, I have been guilty of this too. We kind of hate coming to premieres, even though there's like you know, snacks, because it always starts an hour late and you could just, you want to just go home and write your thing. But, anyways, Variety right, came to the premiere of Night of the Living Dead, was already in a bad mood, and then went home and wrote this <clears throat> Amateurism of the First Order. Pittsburgh based director George A. Romero appears incapable of in- contriving a single graceful setup, and his cast is uniformly poor. Both Judith O'Day and Dwayne Jones are sufficiently talented to warrant supporting roles in a backwoods community theater, but Russell Streiner, Carl Hardman, Keith Wayne, and Judith Ridley do not suggest that Pittsburgh is a haven for undiscovered thespians. John I. Russo's screenplay is a model of verbal banality and suggests a total antipathy for his characters. And then he gets really mean. um, Until the Supreme Court establishes clear-cut guidelines for the pornography of violence, Night of the Living Dead will serve nicely as an outer limit definition by example. In mere 90 minutes, this horror film, pun intended, I don't know why that's a pun, Um, Cast serious aspersions on the integrity and social responsibility of its Pittsburgh makers, distributor Walter Reed, the film industry as a whole, and those who book it, as well as raising doubts about the future of the regional cinema movement and about the moral health of filmgoers who cheerfully opt for this unrelieved orgy of sadism.
2: Well, there you go. I mean, of course. Not a single
4: person listening to this podcast is excused from the anger that Variety has about our moral health. (laughs)
2: Well, I mean, Amy, we we are always asking this question about where does this fall in regards to the aliens, the big people upstairs? Mm -hmm. What what do they what do you think they would think of this film or what do you think this film says about us as a culture?
4: Well, I think the argument for this film is pretty strong, honestly. Like, not only does it establish firmly the rules of a new genre, you know, the horror film. I think it's a really exciting entry in like the late 60s, new Hollywood coming from completely outside the system, not even having like a Jack Nicholson or a Dennis Hopper in it. You know, real cult filmmaking is happening here in 1968, real out of the box, like people who are going to wind up revolutionizing Hollywood. I actually really like this kind of communist style of film production where a bunch of people just put in money and they're like, fingers crossed. We'll see how it goes. I will not lose my house either way. So I think that there's an excitement to this. I mean, I'm sure the aliens will be like, Why are you blaming us, the Venusians, for uh, starting the zombie apocalypse, even though they take pains to not even give it like a full explanation? By the way, did you know that they do think there was life on Venus? This is the new science.
2: Oh, wow. No, I did not know that.
4: Yeah, this is just breaking as of a couple months ago. Like Japanese um, scientists have been studying the atmosphere around Venus and there's molecules in there that could only exist if biological life had existed on that planet. They can't explain it yet. They have no idea what's going on, but there's a chance that there was biological life on Venus. So maybe there is truth to the science behind Night of Living Dead after all, even though, as I, I really respect about it, George Romero was like, listen, this is chaotic. We're not even going to say that that's what happened. Like we're like, this could just happen and nobody will know why.
2: You know, I'm thinking about, well, sorry, like sorry, let me say this. Like It sounds like that's actually the uh, start of another horror film right there. Uh, Who's going to come back? Maybe they'll come to this planet. Where did they go? Uh, You know, I'm thinking about how the aliens would view this. And I'm often of the mindset that the first is to be celebrated, but it often isn't the best version of the thing. Yeah, You know, I think that people can really improve on it. But there was something really interesting in watching this film and while stylistically and, and gore-wise, zombie films have gotten better, the blueprint of this movie is the same thing that we're watching in multiple series of The Walking Dead. And, and in ways, I feel like this film, by being the first, is worthy to be the one that you lead with. Everything else is a photocopy of this. Um, and while, like I said, the improvements are very small. So for that reason... I feel like I'm on shark Tank for that reason, I'm in for keeping this on the list and putting <laughs> that up there, because i I believe that um it's a rare thing to have the first still resonate and mm. and be as engaging and say as much like I felt like this was speaking to me in this time i you know, I felt that that a few times uh, in this second season, and uh wow, I loved it, I loved it, I loved it, I loved it, and uh you know every trope that you want is in there.
4: I love it. Well, now we get to see Dwayne Jones again. I'm excited about this.
2: Yeah, I am too. I don't know that much about this film at all, uh, but um, can you tell me a little bit about it, and then we'll kind of play the trailer.
4: Yeah, I'll just tell you a little bit. Its name is Ganjan Hess. It's a film that comes out, I think, about five years after Night of the Living Dead, and it's a really unique take on the vampire film.
2: Let's take a listen to a trailer.
6: The only perversions that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be tortured. I will not be punished. I will not be guilty. The Blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thee body and soul for everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee.
2: Now, Amy, the interesting thing about Ganjan Hess is it's available on Shudder, and you can get Shudder as an addition to uh, your Amazon Prime. Uh, I think they have a seven-day free trial or some version of that. Shudder is actually pretty amazing. They have some great horror stuff. There's also a documentary we talked about a while ago called um, uh, called Horror Noir, which is also great if you're going to sign up for that service, but it's the only way we could get to this film, and I think It's worthy if you're a horror fan, especially in the month of October, you can enjoy your free preview of it. Watch our film and uh, get to see a few more horror films, independent ones and some big ones. It's a a really cool thing. So we don't often pick a very niche service to watch these films on, but we wanted to do it for this one. So I hope you enjoy Ganja and Hess.
4: It's true. And actually, uh, in the time since we picked this film for this series, uh, I believe Criterion also put it on as part of their 70s horror. So if you're a Criterion person... It's also there. There's so much good stuff in that 70. If you want to see a crazy uh, zombie movie as well um, with makeup done by Tom Savini, um, I just watched Death Dream yesterday. It's like zombie movies also about Vietnam. It's fascinating. I loved it.
2: So interesting. Uh, I love this all. Great conversation with you today. I know there's probably even more out there for us to unearth in this world of zombies, but I think we did a good enough job. Uh, We will see you next week.